Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, June 6th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us about the last time the Walt Disney World Railroad went through an extensive refurbishment and why. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose grandfather died doing what he loved, saying, cars have to stop for pedestrians, you know, before stepping into the crosswalk. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, this brings <laughs> back memories of March of 2004, Len. I was in Philadelphia for Disney's annual meeting. This was the year that Roy Disney and Stanley Gold were trying to oust Eisner with their Save Disney thing. And the annual meeting's being held in the Pennsylvania Convention Center on Art Street. And whereas Roy and Stanley, they're, they're doing a Save Disney rally across the street at the Lowe's Hotel. So yep. I'm supposed to be doing the sit down with Roy and Stanley and I'm running late, not looking what I'm doing. So I step out onto art street and feel a city bus whiz by <laughs> a quarter of an inch away from my cheek. I mean, I literally, wow. I just turn my eye and I can feel my eyelashes being brushed by the raised chrome on the bus. And it's like, <laughs> seriously, if I'd been moving a little bit faster or hadn't stopped as quickly, I'd be dead now. Yeah. If you had one more, one more spoonful of Wheaties that morning, Jim, it would have been over for you. I'm happy to have had the deep half that morning did you happen to get a look at the driver and uh and was it michael eisner <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> now that you mentioned it, Len. <laughs> now that you mentioned it. Hmm. and we have a special guest on the show today arthur levine is a travel writer who's covered theme parks and amusement parks for more than 30 years and in the past couple of weeks he's launched a newsletter and been on guardians of the galaxy at epcot so we have lots to talk about. Welcome, Arthur. Hey, how you doing with Len? Hi, Jim. So Arthur, we've, we've known each other for a few years, but for our listeners, why don't you give them a little bit of a background? How did you get started in this business? Well, I've been doing this for 30 years, Len. I, I, I look back and I can't believe uh, that I've been doing it for, for this long. I've always loved theme parks. It's um, I suspect you guys are probably similar. There's, there's just this inexplicable passion that I have for, for amusement parks and theme parks. And, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, I went to Disneyland. I went to lots of parks here in the New England area. And as I got older, I wanted to somehow get involved in the, in the industry. I had a bit of a background in writing. And one day I was at a magazine stand. And I don't know if you folks listening to this podcast know what magazines are. We can talk about that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was at a magazine stand and I saw Cinderella Castle at the Magic Kingdom on the cover of this magazine that was called Storyboard. And I picked it up because the castle caught my eye. And turns out mm -hmm. that it was a publication for animation collectors, people who collect animation, yeah. which I do not do. But the cover story was about the theme parks and, and sort of its, you know, connection with, with Disney animation. That was Steve Fyatt's magazine, right? Yes. We're going to get to Steve Fyatt. I had a feeling that you knew who he was, Jim, because... Well, you know, that there's only so many of us nerds up here in New Hampshire. I know. So yes. I know. <laughs> This sounds like we're watching a family reunion here. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's great talking with you, Jim, because I, I think we're of a similar vintage. We're both from New England. We both love theme parks. We've both been writing about theme parks. We've bumped into each other countless times at press events. And so I, I feel like we're, we're kindred spirits. But getting back to Storyboard, I was thumbing through the magazine. I enjoyed, uh, you know, the, the cover story about the parks. And then I see coming soon from the publishers of Storyboard Magazine, Theme Park Magazine. And I thought, hmm. whoa, that's kind of interesting. And then I turned to the front of the magazine and I saw that it was published in Southern New Hampshire. And I live in Northern Massachusetts. So I hounded this guy, Steve Fiat, that Jim just mentioned, and said, look, I've got to write for you. This is just something that I have to do. And finally, he relented and allowed me to write the cover story for the first issue of Theme Park Magazine, which was oh, wow. 30 years ago. And it was about the Back to the Future attraction. And I got to interview Doug Trumbull, who had a studio in Western Massachusetts, where he created the Back to the Future attraction for Universal. And I was off to the races. Are you kidding me? You got to go to the rope mill where they, they filmed that thing? I was at the mill along the Housatonic River in Western yes. Massachusetts. Oh, my God. I got yeah. to sit down with the great Doug Trumbull, who, for folks who don't know, 
uh, had storied careers in both the film industry and the theme park industry, and just an absolutely brilliant guy who recently passed away. And incidentally, I've written a column about him, which is going to appear in Fun World magazine in the next issue. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. But anyways, I got to write this cover story uh, about Back to the Future and continue to write for Theme Park magazine. And Jim, I don't know if you know this, but as legend has it, Steve, at a relatively young age, I think he was in his 40s, maybe early 50s, was at mm. Disneyland covering some event there, oh, was at yeah. the Disneyland Hotel, and apparently passed away in his sleep from a heart attack at a, at a relatively young age. Wow. That was the end of Theme Park Magazine. I figured I wanted to continue writing about this industry. So the next thing I did, I came up with the idea of self-syndicating my own newspaper column that I sold, mm. I sold to Sunday newspapers. So I, I was in the Columbus Dispatch and the Atlantic City Press and newspapers all over the country writing about theme parks. It was called What's the Attraction? And so, <laughs> <laughs> Great name. Great name. Thank you. Great name. Yeah. And um, love doing that. But even way, this is going back 25 years ago or so, the newspaper industry was contracting even then. Yeah. And so then I kind of lucked into this gig with about.com writing online. I was the theme parks guide, G-U-I-D-E, for about.com, which morphed into Trip Savvy. This is how I know you. Right. And, and, through, and that, through about.com. That, that's how yeah. probably a lot of people know me. And simultaneously, as I was doing that, I began writing for USA Today and the New York Post and Vox Media and all kinds of other publications and outlets. But Journalism has, has changed dramatically in the 30 years that I've been doing this, and it, it, it's become more and more difficult for me to find a place for my content. So I recently have done what a lot of journalists are doing, and I've moved to Substack, and right. where I have my own newsletter, my own site, and it's, it's an interesting concept, uh, a relatively new one. It's a direct-to-consumer concept where you kind of eliminate the middle person instead of me writing for USA Today and people reading about my stuff in USA Today, I'm sending the content that I write directly to subscribers uh, via email. <laughs> and so the way that people can get my content is they sign up at my Substack site, which is called About Theme Parks. Uh, that's A-B-O-U-T, themeparks.fun, F-U-N. I didn't even know that there was a fun URL until I started looking into this, but it, it turns out there is. So that is what I am doing now. I have my own Substack newsletter. People can uh, subscribe to it. It is ad-free. There's no clickbait. There's no SEO silliness. I'm just writing from the heart, writing with uh, editorial integrity, as I feel like I've always done for USA Today and About.com and all the other places I've been writing for many years. I approach it with respect for readers and respect for the industry. I conduct a lot of interviews and try and do as much firsthand research as possible. And twice a week, I'm sending out my newsletter, and uh, if if people want to subscribe to it, it uh, is uh, there are different levels. You can be a free subscriber, and that's absolutely fine. And then there are paid options uh, where you get bonus content and the ability to comment and join the conversation. Um, and if people want to do that, uh, that would be great. That's the way that I generate some income. Uh, and that's the way Ooh. people can support journalism if, if they wish, or if they want to be a free subscriber, that's fine as well. So that's, that's my story. My comment, uh, when, whenever people say some variation of, I like your information, but I want to want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. My comment is always, yeah, Hey, I'm, I'm all for working for free, but you first, let me know <laughs> when I can hire you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Arthur, you, uh, you've recently written Guardians of the Galaxy, and I believe the most recent email you sent out talks about how you evaluate new rides. Can you walk us through your evaluation criteria for a ride like Guardians of the Galaxy? I guess whenever I approach an attraction, I kind of look at the value proposition. I look at the hype that the park has generated and I see, you know, do, does it live up to the hype? Does it meet the expectations? So in, in this case, it's you're looking at what the park is saying about the ride? What the park, what the perhaps the ride designer is saying about it, okay. what the industry is saying about it, what park fans are saying about it. 
that that's one of the ways that that I look at it. In the case of thrill rides, I also assign it what I call a, a thrillometer rating, and I, I have a five point rating system because there were a lot of people out there. And Guardians of the Galaxy is a perfect example. This is a roller coaster that's indoors; you can't see it. You have no way to right. gauge what's going to happen to you. You can read about it a little bit, to see yeah. what you know what Disney's description of it is. It's the Chinese grandmother problem that we've talked about in the show. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. so I assign it a a thrillometer rating, and I and I, I break down what people can expect when they go on a ride like Guardians of the Galaxy, which has some very unique elements that the Omnicoaster element is, 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 is extremely unique and makes for a very interesting uh, ride experience. And so I try to explain that a little bit so people know what they're getting, getting themselves into. So those are some of the things that I look at when I, when I evaluate an attraction. What I love about you, Arthur, is you, you don't just cover- I, I love you too, Jim, park. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the big parks like Disney or Universal, but you're also you know, you're a champion for the smaller parks and places like Lake Compounds. And when you have something like, say, the Boulder Dash, that parks coaster, where it's not only built into the hillside of the park, but over the years, all these trees have grown up. So in a weird sort of way, it's the very same thing. It's the cosmic rewind problem, as in people walk up and go, well, what's that? It's like, oh, it's the Boulder Dash. And so, oh, I'll get on this, not realizing that it is, you know, it's one of those old fashioned wooden coasters that literally scrambles your kidneys. I mean, you, you get off <laughs> screaming through the countryside on it. Yes. <laughs> How do you rate something like that where it's literally hiding in plain sight in the middle of this beautiful park? <laughs> well, again, a lot of it has to do with context. The expectations are going to be different at a park like Lake Compounds or Canopy mm-hmm. Lake Park in New Hampshire than it would mm-hmm. be at Epcot, for example. So that's something that I certainly take into consideration. And Boulder Dash is trying to accomplish something entirely different than what the Imagineers are trying to accomplish with Cosmic Rewind. And so I have to take that into consideration as well. But you're absolutely right. Boulder Dash is a wonderful wooden coaster. You cannot see really what's happening because it goes off deep into the woods and hides behind the mountain side there. So so I try to, um, without giving away too much, try to prepare people for the experience that they might have should they decide to go on a ride like like Boulder Dash by, you know, breaking down the elements, talking about what happens maybe when it uh, crests the hill and goes up and off into the mountainside without giving away too much so that there's still an element of surprise. So it's, it's a delicate art sometimes. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Uh, we're going to continue talking to you, Arthur, as we go through the show. Uh, but first, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Ms. Meg Quinn, Jared Atkins, and JDH415S, and longtime subscribers, Three Littletons for Now, and Dave Letizza. Jim, these are the Disney cast members who got in a little bit of hot water for using Epcot's friendship boats to restage the climactic scene in Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Disney was fine with the ship-to-ship battles, of course, but it happened in the middle of Harmonious, and guests liked it more than the fireworks. True story. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) That's where the problem is. There we go. All right, folks, on to the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online. It's storybookdestinations.com. Jim, thanks to our friends over at wdwmagic.com, we've noticed a construction permit for the currently closed Blizzard Beach Water Park. And I've put the construction area, Jim, in the show notes, and we'll, we'll post these show notes to the web as well. Um, but this is the southwest corner of the park, where the park's boundary is essentially the lazy river going around the park. And the closest water slide here is the three-lane runoff rapids. So for our listeners who have been on that, this is what we're talking about. Jim, uh, the couple of interesting things here, the construction crane that Disney is putting in place here has a span of 360 feet, which is longer than a football field. In fact, the crane can reach from outside of the park all the way into the launch point of three other water slides, toboggan racers, snowstormers, and downhill dubber dipper. So Jim, without any other construction equipment like bulldozers, I mean, this sounds like a maintenance thing or installation of new show elements. What do we? What do you think we're looking at here? What kind of intrigues me is the proximity of the runoff rapids. 
I guess I would need to do some research to find out when that last saw significant maintenance, because if you think about, you know, where it's positioned, it would be relatively easy to reach into the park at that point and pull out pieces of track to replace them. But have we heard anything about Blizzard Beach coming back online? No. And I mean, frankly, we've started summer and so I don't expect it to happen this year. I mean, uh, at the very earliest I would expect Blizzard Beach to start up when Typhoon Lagoon shuts down so that there's always one theme park running. But this is part of the larger issue of capacity. The thing that I, I was thinking about here was that Disney's water parks don't have themed lands like its theme parks do mm-hmm. or like Volcano Bay does. But if you wanted to put, and I'm just hypothesizing here, I have no inside knowledge about this. If you wanted to put a Frozen theme into a water park, Blizzard Beach is the water park you would put it in, not Typhoon Lagoon. Mm-hmm. And these three attractions, Toboggan Racers, Snowstormers, Downhill the Bridge River, plus the Runoff Rapids, could you know, conceivably be grouped into their own, and again, hypothesizing here, an Olaf-themed land. When we finish here, I will. There's this old-fashioned device called a telephone. <laughs> let, let Is that the thing that you, you you text from? There we go. We got Dixie <laughs> cup and string. Let me call one of the five people who are actually left in the building at fourteen oh one Flower Street. <laughs> See if somebody has any insight they'd like to share. Well, if if that is in fact something new, correct me if I'm wrong, but Typhoon Lagoon has had a couple of expansions, but Blizzard Beach, I don't think there's been anything significant added to it since it opened, right? It's not. not, uh, And if it has, it's been a long, long, long time. The particular area, uh, Arthur, that they're in the park here, I don't think includes enough space for a new attraction Mm -hmm. because the lazy river and then the, uh, the road around the park are sort of obstacles that I don't think can be overcome. And I don't know that Disney's interested in spending capital in a closed water park right now. I think a, a retheme here, sort of like, you know, Maelstrom to Frozen Ever After. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had to bet money, I'm betting either maintenance or installation of uh, show elements to retheme existing rides. Yeah. Pretty safe bet. Yeah. yeah. If you guys hear anything, let me know. Okay. The other uh, bit of news that was interesting, and this came out yesterday, I believe, thanks to our friend Scott Gustin on Twitter, was that Disneyland has now suspended sales of all of its Magic Key annual passes while simultaneously introducing a new ticket for summer that costs California residents $83 a day. Arthur, you mentioned working for the New York Post. I have uh, in the show notes a headline from the Daily News of New York from the mid-1970s that says, uh, Ford to City of New York, drop dead. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason why I, I say this is Jim and I have long talked on the show about how Disneyland has mixed emotions about with its annual pass holders and its annual pass holder programs. They love the revenue. They dislike the fact that people actually use the, use the annual passes, right? And especially in instances uh, these days where Disney's intentionally limiting the park capacity because of staffing and other issues. What Disney's trying to do here is optimize the mix of people in the parks by spending levels. And they're prioritizing out-of-state guests. We're seeing it not only in Disneyland, but also in Walt Disney World, right? And Bob, and Bob Chapek has been transparent mm-hmm. in saying this. You know, he says that people who stay in the hotels who come in from out-of-state spend more money per day and per capita than guests who are locals. And Disney wants more money for a given park capacity. But what else might be driving this? It's a tricky calculus. You know, the, the demand is just so intense for both Disneyland and Disney World. And you see them struggling. You guys have talked about this, you know, with all kinds of different uh, efforts, whether it's Disney Genie or Genie Plus or uh, all these different ways that they're trying to manage the crowds and make it a pleasant experience while also maximizing the revenue. It's a very difficult game that they're trying to play. And it's frankly a problem that they have, a, a good problem. I mean, the demand is is just so intense, but it's a problem nonetheless. So as you said, they, they have sort of a, a love-hate relationship with, uh, with their annual pass holders, and they simultaneously seem to want to embrace them and, and repel them. And so this is what we're seeing. Disneyland is the world's most famous regional theme park. And the whole yep. notion is 
that you want the locals to come back twice a year. You want them to come back and you know for the holidays. And you want them to come back during the summer and somewhere in between there is when you're trying to get the folks who will fly in from out of town to, to, to mm-hmm. stay at the hotels. In fact, we just saw them announce the redo of the Paradise Pier Hotel for the uh, retheming of that for Pixar with the hope that that will get additional guests who want to stay on property. This is a Disneyland resort that is is evolving and reconsidering who it's pitching to when. And by the way, Len, I'm, assu- I'm assuming you've been keeping tabs on the whole... The scandal out there in in Anaheim over the past week to ten days about Jim. It, uh, let me just say uh, commentary coming up about twenty twenty two. Which scandal <laughs> are you speaking of? Is it the Disneyland con- secretly controlling the Anaheim board? Or are we talking about the uh, the Magic Key lawsuit? Actually, this is the Venn diagram where those those two meet. While this is going on, they're in the middle of doing their Disneyland forward outreach to the local community. <laughs> Pay no attention to the story about us manipulating your city council. No, that's it exactly. In fact, that's what uh, basically I've been hearing from, from friends at the company. It's like, at this point, Disneyland forward is not going to move forward. I mean, how no. can you in this environment where you have stories of the Disneyland rep telling the council members, well, phrase it like this. So, you know, yeah, writing, big- writing out the words that need to be said. I mean, we know it, we know it happens at other levels of government. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't really be a surprise that it happens, but still, every time you hear about it, it's, it's still surprising, right? No, 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 absolutely. And for now to be in the middle of this program where Disney is trying to get the city to allow them to say, okay, previously that was a parking lot, but we want to make it retail. We want to make mixed use. And it's just sort of like this whole project, we could be seeing the can get kicked down the road four and five years. Yeah. I think it, I think it'd be difficult for the Anaheim um, city council right now to approve Anything. Anything that Disneyland wants without the people who are on the council right now getting negative ads in their next election campaign if that happens, right? Because people would just say, look, mm-hmm. this, you know, their their opponents would say, look, these these people are part of the problem and they're not fairly evaluating the Disneyland's needs versus the needs of the taxpayers. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's Absolutely. that would just be the campaign thing. The the thing that I find interesting about Disney being willing to completely abandon annual passes in Disneyland is that annual passes still aren't sale aren't for sale in Walt Disney World, including for DVC. Mm-hmm. And DVC is a much larger revenue source in world than in land. And it's got to be hurting their DVC sales oh, because the, the, the calculus of not having an annual pass yet having 10 days of DVC points to spend mm-hmm. is got to be something that people are taking into account, right? I literally got email earlier this week from a DVC member who talked about what we've been saying about uh, annual passes being not allowed to, uh, you know, to be renewed or be purchased. Mm -hmm. And they talked about, well, no, the rep I talked with got off the phone, came back and said, sure, we can take care of that. So in a weird sort of (laughs) way, You know, it's one of these situations where are you talking to the right person? I lo- yeah, I say I love a corporate policy that comes down to who who specifically did you speak to? Yeah. <laughs> it drives me insane. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that though, but I had a friend mm-hmm. who reached out and said that DVC called them cold mm-hmm. call about signing up for DVC. And his first question was, can I get an annual pass to go with it? And that was basically the end of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Like, I can't promise you anything. Like, what's, what's, what's bullet point two in your talking points <laughs> after that? Like, where do you, where does this conversation go? And I told you the lovely view from the veranda. Yeah, and it's exactly. like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. That's, that's really, tough. really tough. So we'll see what happens there. I don't, um, I, I mean, obviously, the fact that Disneyland has a ticket out just for California residents through the end of summer means I don't think we're going to see Magic Key anytime soon. But, Jim, do you think, that Disney will wait until the lawsuit around Magic Key annual passes is resolved before reintroducing those with new terms and new conditions? It just, you know. I think they have to because if they if they bring back the Magic Key and they either change the disclosures mm-hmm. or change the rules, that's immediately going to go back into the lawsuit to say, and you guys knew it was a problem because you changed it this way. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they can. I think they have to resolve the suit before they bring back or change the magic key program in Disneyland. I was talking with somebody at the company just this week and they were talking about how it felt like we were finally out of the barrel. You know, the yeah. whole don't say gay thing and the, the Reedy Creek thing had faded out of the news due to other events. And then yeah. now yeah. this lawsuit and now the whole thing with Daniel Passett and it's like, right. we're back in the spotlight again. And it's like, you can't win for losing. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think. So we'll see what happens. All right. Let's move on to a couple of listener questions. Uh, first listener question is from Wade, who says, on our latest trip to Walt Disney World, my wife and I needed to use the rider switch for the first time in about five years since we were traveling with our baby boy who was born on 2-22-22. Wade, you will never forget that birthday. The last time we used Rider Switch with our two older sons, the parent who sat out of the attraction was able to return with two additional guests to go through the Fast Pass line. We didn't always use all three spots, but it was nice to know that it was there if we needed it. During this last visit, however, we were told that only one additional person may return with the parent who sat out when we needed the three spots for my wife and I and our two older sons. And this was very frustrating because the cast members were basically telling us to choose a favorite child. Uh, let me just say, as the middle child of four, uh, I know I am not my parents, my, my mother's favorite child. All I want to be is in the top three. Um, anyway, some cast members were sympathetic and simply created an additional writer switch return time for us. But most were firm and only allowed my wife or myself to return with only one child. Do you know when this change was made to the rider switch policy? I talked to someone in guest services and they didn't know when the new policy began. So I did some research, Wade, and the new policy began, it was implemented late summer last year. And the source of the problem was a TikTok video that described for people how to use rider switch to get multiple rides on Rise of the Resistance. And that's what Disney is reacting to here. Now, obviously, the problem with that is that the policy doesn't differentiate between people who legitimately need to have more than one person ride uh, the second ride. Like, Wade, your instance with, you know, for three kids, it doesn't differentiate between people who have a legitimate need and people who are trying to scam the system. Once again, the the internet destroys the world. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The the social media ruins everything. Um, You know, I'm told it is up to cast member discretion and it, and in general, it uh, depends on the ride that you're going on. So for the Rise of the Resistance, it's probably being enforced at one. If you wanted to do something like you know, Dumbo, the cast members are probably more lenient there. But I did speak with three individual cast members uh, about this yesterday. And it is a policy. Uh, it is the standard to have just one. But depending on the cast member, the time of year you're going, how long the lines are in the attraction, you might be able to reason with them. But yeah, that's, that's a limitation in the policy. I mean, I can see where that, that is upsetting to people. Makes me crazy that that one TikTok is what then makes it difficult for a parent with small children where it's like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I understand Disney's point here, especially on something like Rise of the Resistance, where it's a popular ride with a lot of demand and a lot of downtime. Hmm. They need to do that. The thing for me is the cast members don't always know how much leeway they have. Hmm. So I think a lot of cast members look at this as a black or white issue. I can do one or I'm not going to do the policy you know, or it's going to be none, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's difficult for the cast members, especially new cast members, mm-hmm. to know when they can make exceptions. And I, I think as a sense. result, they're uncomfortable making any exceptions. Mm-hmm. And that's not the intent. I'm sure that's not Disney in- Disney's intent. So there might be a little bit more training that has to happen here. Oh, here's hoping. Next question is from uh, Ted and Jim. This one is for you. Do either you, Len, or Jim have any insight into what's happening with the former Tarzan's Treehouse or Swiss Family Treehouse at Disneyland. It looks like they've already started major construction. This is the treehouse as we know it from uh, November of 62, which then in 1999 got retooled to become Tarzan's Treehouse. And if we all look back to November of last year when Encanto came out, they are looking for a way to bring that particular film into the park as quickly as possible. And if you know, remember the young boy who learned to talk to animals. We're going to see the tree effectively become his bedroom. You'll enter through the door and you walk up into his tree, which will now be themed more around uh, Central America. I mean, it, it's the sort of redo that was done for the Tarzan tree house where you sure. had the bones of the Swiss family tree house still in place, but with Tarzan scenes for overlays. And it, it'll be much the same thing. But again, it's 
Disney trying to move as quickly as possible, especially for the incredibly competitive Southern California market, to bring a hit film into the park in a significant way. So I'm being told uh, fall of 2022 is when we can expect this to come into the park. Oh, that's soon. Yeah, well, they would love to be able to say, movie came out last year and bang, Mm -hmm. here it is in the park. By the way, come here for the holidays. So. Oh, fantastic. You think you'd get a think they would do, would do a holiday overlay for that as well? That would be super interesting. Uh, that, that would be, but one, one thing at a time. One thing at a time. Fantastic. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the last time the Walt Disney World Railroad was closed for an extended period and why. Have you ever dreamt of living near Disney World? Walks through Epcot, lunches at Disney Springs, or hearing the fireworks from the Magic Kingdom at night? You can do all that with the help of realtor Vikna Naraki, a specialist in communities surrounding Disney World. Relocation, second home, investment properties, or retirement? Find more information at DisneyAtYourDoorstep.com. Tell them you heard about it on Disney Dish. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. These days you hear a lot of people talking about burnout, which according to the American Psychological Association, isn't a medical condition per se but rather physical, emotional, or mental exhaustion accompanied by decreased motivation, lowered performance, and negative attitudes towards oneself and others. Now, most of the time, you hear about burnout being associated with work, but life all by itself can be pretty overwhelming. And any of the roles that we play outside of work, be it parent or caregiver, can leave us feeling burned out. This is why BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that it's okay to make yourself a priority. Which is why, if you're feeling burned out, well, maybe it's time you talked with someone about what's causing so much stress in your life. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. BetterHelp Online Therapy is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And did I mention our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Disney Dish? That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. All right, Jim, when you proposed this topic, the first thing I did is look up how long it took to build the first transcontinental railroad in the United States. And that was six years, Jim, from 1863 to 1869. So about six and a half years for nearly 2,000 miles of railroad through some of the country's roughest terrain. It was a monumental achievement. Tron Light Cycle Run has been in development since 2017. So almost as long as it took to build the first transcontinental railroad. And that's important because the Tron construction is the thing that closed down the Walt Disney World Railroad. And I know Disney will point out, Jim, that the pandemic has impacted construction schedules for Tron. But before we accept that as an excuse, it's worth noting, Jim, the dates of the Transcontinental Railroad, 1863 to 1869. That's during the American Civil War, Jim. (laughs) When Let me just point out that staffing issues and material and supply chains might also have been an issue during that conflict. So not quite the apples to apples comparison that Disney wants there. The Disneyland's Grand Circle Tour is 1.5 miles long. So the fact that three and a half years, you know, in fact, one of the reasons we're discussing this today is just in the past couple of weeks, we've finally seen them working on the rail bed again, which means yeah, the, the trestles, the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. So we are now in the window of time where track work is being done, which means the train, you know, will finally become operational again. But having been disabled for three and a half years. And Walt himself would have never tolerated this. In fact, there's a time in late December of 1965, early 1966, when the Disneyland Railroad had to be shut down. Because, Len, at that time, they were adding four attractions to Disneyland. We're talking about Small World. We're talking about Primeval World. New Orleans Square, which, of course, included building Pirates of the Caribbean, which had to... You had to go actually go under the train track. You had to create, uh, uh, you know, and in fact, this is the, the issue with both 
Pirates of the Caribbean and Small World, that you were building a giant show building on the other side of the berm. So you had to dig- Right. And then Tron, Tron is inside the berm, but, but mm. outside of the normal park boundary. So similar situation. There you go. So Walt was able to get all of this work done in six months. To be fair, the park was closed, uh, was it two days a week? Yes, during the, the fall and late winter, uh, it would close on Mondays and Tuesdays. So you could get a lot of work done. Okay, but still, six months and six years? Okay. <laughs> okay, but, but also important to point out here that this is right after Mary Poppins opens in theater. That opens in August of 64, goes into wide theatrical release just three weeks later, becomes the highest grossing film of 1964, which effectively hands Walt a money fire hose. <laughs> so, okay. you know, and this is at this point, I can do anything. I'm Walt Disney. So, you know, for example, first season of the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair ends in October of 64. Walt not only has them pull the, the Lincoln animatronic out of Flushing Meadow and bring it back so they can retool it, make a version that won't get knocked askew by the fair's screwy electrical system. But while Walt has the Lincoln animatronic back in Glendale, they say, tell you what, build two of them. We'll send the new mm-hmm. one back and, you know, we'll put the other one in the opera house. In fact, we'll use that as the centerpiece of our celebration of the 10th anniversary of putting of Disneyland. By the way, Walt and Lillian actually go to Disneyland for the dedication of Mr. Lincoln in the, the Main Street Opera House. But Len, they're there in the park on July 18th, which Walt insisted that was the day that Disneyland opened. That was the day when the public first got into the park. So as far as Walt was concerned, that was the mm-hmm. opening day of Disneyland. Now, when Walt dies, Disney's marketing team decides, we're going to slide when we celebrate Disneyland's opening back one day because that's the day that we had the huge parade in the park. And that's when all the celebrities came. And if we choose to ever rerun the Dateline Disneyland, that 90-minute-long special that ran on ABC, it's like, hey, this was July 17th at Disneyland. That's the day we celebrate. Ooh. You know what I got out of that story, Jim, by the way, which I've never heard before and did not realize that there mm. were two different dates, Yep, uh, is that Walt's default thought process mm-hmm. was thinking about it from the guest perspective. Yeah. But at the same time, the company would do this. Uh, you know, for example, Walt in 33 went on record to the effect of, look, Mickey Mouse's birthday is October 1st. We jump ahead now to 1978, where somebody within the company who hadn't evidently heard that Walt had said Mickey's birthday was October 1st. And it's like, well, when is Mickey's birthday? Because we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the character, and we, we want to know when to hold the celebration. And, and Dave thinks for a moment, it's like the day that Steamboat Willie ran in de- debut in the Colonial Theater in New York, you know, the, the synchronized sound cartoon that effectively launched the Disney company. Well, that was November 18th of that year. So, okay, that's when Mickey's birthday should be. How did Walt come up with October 1st? Was that the day that he did the first drawing? I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's what's fascinating about Disney history is that there are people who base Mickey's height in the cartoons and that sort of thing. On the, on the, there's this one piece of newsreel footage of, of Walt working with Billy Belcher to record the soundtrack uh, for a Mickey Mouse cartoon. And He's reading a line to the effect of, hi, I'm Mickey Mouse, you know, Mickey Mouse. And Walt, at this point, gestures to suggest how tall Mickey is. And he's, you know, he puts his hand like three feet off the ground. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, that's what Walt thinks Mickey's height is. And going forward, Mickey's three feet tall. To borrow a phrase from Doctor Who, when it comes to the timey-wimey aspects mm-hmm. of Disney company history, things get a little slippy slide. Anyway, back to Walt and his money fire hose. When the New York World's Fair shuts down for the winter in October of 64, Walt has the 27 technicians that he actually sent out from the studio and paid to have them stay there to keep all of the Disney attractions of the fair. You know, he has them actually re- <laughs> retool load on load area of Small World. Congratulations, boys. You get an all expenses paid trip to Flushing Meadows. <laughs> There you, go. you know, I think if I said that on The Price is Right, it would not have the same effect. All right. <laughs> I think you are correct. But Small World, in its version at Flushing Meadow, Len, they were getting 4,500 people an hour through that thing. That's a lot. Oh, yeah. I, lot. Well, the, the, according to the stats from the, the, the fair, 
that meant 80% of the people who went at the Flushing Meadow to experience the 64, 65 New York World's Fair got to ride Small World. But even uh, Walt was like, no, we could do better. So he has them go in, retool the load on low air to make it that much more efficient, and actually bumps the numbers up on another 500 people an hour. 5,000 people an hour. That's, that's essentially two Pirates of the Caribbeans, give or take. No, 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 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So the fair closes for good, October of 65, races on. Disney partners with the Mayflower Moving Company to get all of the sets and animatronics packed up and sent back to Glendale for refurbishment. That's what happened with the 32 animatronics and the Progress Land exhibit. Likewise, the mechanical dinosaurs that were in Ford's Magic Skyway. Uh, This is how it comes up with the, okay, I see where you're going with the railroad thing here. Go ahead. Yeah, but in seven months' time, Lent, from when the fair closes, the shows begin to open up in Anaheim. Small World opens in late May of 66. It's not even the same show that played in Flushing Meadow. Walt insisted that it be plussed and improved. So they get two new show scenes. They get the Pacific Islands and the North Pole. And wow. then just a month later, Primeval World, which, by the way, the PR team described as the world's largest diorama, featuring life-size recreations of some of the largest creatures ever on our planet. That opens July 1st, 66. But the Primeval Diorama is the centerpiece of a brand new admin building at Disneyland that they build along the same time. It's a, it's a 100,000 square foot structure, 450 feet long, but picture an Oreo. Okay, so you have okay. half of the admin building built facing out. It's on the outside of the berm. And then you have the other half of this admin building facing into the berm. And mm-hmm. the diorama for the primeval world is the creamy scent. <laughs> Jim, I cannot wait for your next review in Architectural Digest magazine. There we go. <laughs> so Walt builds an, builds an admin building half on, half off of Disneyland. You know, I, I understand why, right? Mm-hmm. He wants his team mm-hmm. to be very close to the park, to be able to walk around it like he does. On the other hand, that is some very expensive and valuable real estate to put admin stuff on. It is. And in fact, there's a copy of the Disney World magazine where they show the brand new admin building in the background. And what they did after they, they got it up and running is they tore down the original admin building, which was the mm-hmm. Ron Dominguez family farm. And, oh Yeah, I mean, it, it's literally sitting backstage between Tomorrowland and Main Street, USA, and you couldn't be closer to the park. You can walk 50 feet from the, the Dominguez Farm building, and you're, you're on Main Street. So mm. you've built this building in the middle of the admin building where the steam train goes through roughly every 10 minutes. <laughs> it's, like, it's like living above the L in Chicago. And there's dinosaurs. <laughs> Is, is that my stomach rumbling or is that the chili? I in fact, it, it's so funny you say this because that if you talk to people who work in the admin building, they literally talk about the first two and three days there where you cannot not notice the building is rumbling. Oh, this is steam train. And it's like, why am I hearing roaring? And it's like, oh, well, That's those we are call the- a fixer upper. <laughs> and and the, the weird part of it is as after two and three days. It just becomes white noise. And then yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that's how you recognize the newbies in the building. They're like, <laughs> they're like, what the hell was that? And you're like, what was what? <laughs> Do you remember, remember when you and I were in, when Palms, we, uh, we were in Palm Springs and mm-hmm. we were next to the airport. And then after like two days, we were completely uh, immune to the takeoff and landing oh, because absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. it was just there. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is the biggest, at that time, it was the biggest build campaign in, in Disneyland history. And, and But think about this, Len. For $23 million, they got New Orleans Square. They got Small World. They got Primeval World and Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, they got all of the animatronics for Small World and Primeval World paid for by, you know, this, you know, one was paid for by Ford and the other one was paid for by Pepsi-Cola. Okay. $23 million in 1965 is $211 million today. Okay. That's basically half of a Marvel movie well, or yeah. basically what they paid for probably Guardians of the Galaxy. All true. All true. Anyway, Walt is looking at this and the Imagineer is explaining, well, we have to go into the berm, which we have to, we have to shut down the, the train. And Walt says, okay, you got five months. And it, yet it's one of these things, it wasn't negotiable. Because it was like, Walt at that time is actually the primary owner of the steam train 
and the steamboat and the Alweg monorail. I mean, the, oh, the, okay, yeah, yeah, because he owned them through his private company, Redwall, and anyway, or excuse me, Redlaw. So Walt gets furious in the spring of 66 because they'd had an especially wet spring. By the way, that Albert Hammond song from 72, It Never Rains in Southern California, lies through its teeth, Len. It gets really <laughs> wet and they just fell behind schedule. So they were going to have to postpone bringing the Disneyland Railroad back by an entire month. John Hench once told me the story when they had to break this news to Walt. You know, it was Hench that had to do it because he's, they're not sending an underling in to do no, it. No, no, they're not. And Walt just gets furious. And he, he starts to talk about adults are paying $5 to get in here. You know, Five whole dollars. This is for the 15 adventure ticket book. All right. If you were a junior, 12 to 17, you paid four fifty, And if you were a kid, you paid $4. And Walt is, look. This park isn't worth $5 without a steam train. You know, if people come to guest relations and complain about it, we should give them a refund. I can't believe yeah. you guys are putting me in this position that you are preventing my steam train from opening on time and yeah. people aren't getting their full value for what they pay. And it's just, you said at the very top of the show, we want to remind people there was the pandemic and let's be yeah. honest, it's not guest relations fault that this took no. three and a half years, but one would wonder if you went to guest relations today and said, hey. I'd like a refund because the trains are running. Yeah. Oh, the cast members would have a great laugh. <laughs> Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. And, and Arthur, you can weigh in on this. You know, Walt, as we can tell, is mm-hmm. was, was centered on his guests. But mm-hmm. even before Disneyland, everybody knew his love of trains. Yeah. So to go in and say, the Disneyland train, literally the thing that has been in every mm-hmm. perspective drawing mm-hmm. of this theme park since it was a gleam in Walt's eye. This is the thing that we're going to tell Walt we can't get running. It's like saying, how do you feel about coming over for Thanksgiving, but we're not going to have turkey? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there's that famous saying about it was all started by a mouse, but really mm-hmm. it was all started by a train. Let's let's be honest about right. it. Yeah. And, and not for nothing. I mean, Walt did invent Mickey Mouse on a train. Yes, he did. Right? So there's a link there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's – of all of the things that you're going to tell Walt he can't have in Disneyland, the mm-hmm. train is probably at the top of the list of no-nos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. So do we have any idea of how many refunds uh, Walt, Walt had issued? By the way, I love the idea that he's giving a full roof refund for the entire park admission because one ride. Mr. Hent shared that story just to give the impression of how Walt viewed the park. And again, you're not wrong. He oh, always yeah. wore the guest shoes. You know, the, yeah. the John literally used to tell the story about Walt wouldn't allow them when they were going down to Disneyland to do work. It's like, no, you can't go in the back gate. No, you can't park up back. You got to do what the guests do. You got to drive into the parking lot. You got to pay to get in and you got to come through that turnstile. I want you to walk where the guests walk. I want you to see what the guests see. And once Walt passed in December of 66, that version of the Walt Disney Company went in the rearview mirror. I think that some parts of Disney management today understand the value of that. And, I, and we've said this before on the, on the show, Jim, but this is one of the reasons why Imagineering is moving to Lake Nona so that people can be close to the biggest theme park operations that Disney has. And I, I love that that's what that's supposed to be about. What worries me is the institutional memory, how so many of the veteran Imagineers who have family or kids in school or parents they have to take care of in the area who just opted out. I worry when you you only have people who've been building theme parks for a couple of years versus a couple of decades are calling the shots about what you want to do next in Florida. Yeah, there's that tension, right? You need new talent to come in with new ideas periodically, but Mm -hmm. you can't lose the institutional knowledge of why certain things are done certain ways, even if it doesn't make sense to the newbies. The thing I would love to see Imagineering do, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making this up, is they need to go into park, they should use the park reservation system. Oh, yeah. Honest to God. Yeah. For two reasons. One, it's always important to experience the, thing that, the things that guests do. Number mm-hmm. two, there are computer issues or computer system issues with the reservation system that are independent of the problems of the reservation system itself, mm-hmm. right? There's the problem of like, you know, actually getting a reservation, but then there's also a problem around computer systems that implement that. And I think more of those issues would be fixed or at least be a higher priority 
for management if management had to deal with those anytime they wanted to go to the parks too. So the uh, you guys are familiar with the term dog fooding. You've got to eat your own dog food. And that's that's what this is. You have to use the products that you build. And I think that would be uh, that'd be super important. No, I agree. And I would love to have one of these these people actually realize how much time they have to spend face down in their phone to experience a Disney theme park these days. Yeah. Just sort of like, there's a there's a disconnect there, guys. You you really yep. need, you know, and you'd only know that if you put on the guest shoes. I just wanted to say I'm having kind of an out of body experience here listening to. Jim, uh, expound on this this topic. Jim, you do such a great job. You're masterful in your research and your storytelling. And as I was saying before we started recording today, I, I listen to you guys every week, and I, I think you do a great job. And to sort of be part of it and hear listening to you do this kind of live, I'm, I'm having I'm <laughs> having this this little out of body experience here. But one thing I did want to say, it, it occurred to me as you were talking about the New York World's Fair, Eddie Sato, the, the former Imagineer mentioned oh, yeah, on Eddie, Twitter the other time. day, something mm-hmm. about the New York World's Fair. And he, he had some pictures, uh, some images of the picture phone that they uh, debuted at the World's Fair. And oh, I yeah. responded by saying, hey, I was at the World's Fair. I remember the picture phone. And then somebody else responded something like, dude, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was going to ask you if you if you attended the World's Fair. And then I thought, oh, he's too young for that. I, I actually did attend. Granted, I was a very young little, little guy, but I did attend and it was a seminal experience. It was one of those things that kind of set me on this path of having this passion for, for parks, uh, especially the Disney attractions, but really everything about the fair just had an enormous impact on me. I was, when, when I saw the Carousel of Progress and It's a Small World and, and all the other things, I mean, they had to scrape my jar off the ground. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing and experiencing. So to hear you talk about the World's Fair uh, again, Jim, it just you know kind of brings back those memories and rekindles that enthusiasm that I had as a little guy and still have today. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Arthur. All right, uh, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, it's the anniversary of Disneyland's Monsanto House of the Future, and Jim will have all of the details. Plus, Jim, and I think this is breaking news, maybe something about the redo of Splash Mountain for Princess and the Frog. We'll see. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmini.com and more of me, lenettetouringplans.com. Ooh, uh, if I can interject here for a sec. I want to mention that this coming Saturday, Sunday, June 10th through the 12th, I'm going to be in Dayton at Dayton Disney Anna. This is an event being held at the Hope Hotel and the Richard C. Holbrook Conference Center. Last couple of years, due to the pandemic, this event, which benefits Pirate Packs, which is this terrific organization that helps the kids of the West Carlton School District who are dealing with food and security issues. It's been virtual, but now Dayton Disney is back. I'm going to be there emceeing and hosting a number of panels. I'll be giving a talk about the history of the Main Street Electrical Parade and as well as interviewing Tom Nabby, who was the very first Tom Sawyer to work at Disneyland Park. Uh, Walt Disney himself picked Tom for this gig. I'm going to be chatting with Mr. Nabby about the various Tom Sawyer's islands that the uh, Imagineers built around the globe. A really great cause. Plus, State and Disney is going to have a huge vendor room where you can hunt for collectibles. Should be a fun, fun time. So come on out to the Hope Hotel and the Richard C. Holbrook Conference Center in Dayton, June 10th through the 12th. All right, folks, we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be giving his theory that Vasily Kadinsky's 1923 painting, Composition 8, is the result of too many Frankfurters eaten around a Munich swimming pool as part of the lecture series, German Expressionism and the Sea, this Thursday, June 9th, at the Minnesota Marine Art Museum on Riverview Drive in beautiful downtown Winona, Minnesota. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.